Hello, and welcome to this podcast from Consider This. Please let me know what you think and tell others about us on social media. This podcast was originally broadcast live on Northumberland 89.7 FM. You can hear this show live every Friday at noon. Thank you for downloading this program, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome back. This is Consider This Northumberland and I'm your host Robert Washburn and you're listening to Northumberland 89.7 FM. Think back to this time last year. There was a real sense that we were united in facing the pandemic. We responded as a community. Neighbors were helping each other. People were making face masks and giving them away. A micro business was set up locally to produce personal protective equipment. It was all done by volunteers. Except for a few minor exceptions, people were following the public health rules. We were all in this together. Now think about how you might feel today. The sense of social cohesion, that glue that binds us to each other, appears to be fading. Or maybe it has disappeared. What happened? In this interview, you will hear a new term, politically produced precarity. It is a way politicians and other leaders, through their decisions and policies, create a sense of inequity among people. It creates fear, anxiety, and distress to a point we are less likely to feel like a community. There is a sense of being left out or left behind as the pandemic continues to unfold. An expert from York University is going to talk about this idea of politically produced precarity and how we went from experiencing togetherness to each person for themselves. I'm so pleased to have with me today Yvonne Sue, a professor at York University in the Department of Equity Studies. Welcome to Consider This Northumberland. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, Rob. You wrote an article for The Conversation with the headline, With COVID-19's Third Wave, We're Far From All In This Together. Before we get into the deeper aspects of your article, can you describe when and what you were referring to when you suggest that there was a point where Ontarians were in this pandemic together? Well, if you guys remember, in the very beginning of the pandemic in early March, uh, all these politicians were coming out saying that we're all in this together, we've got your back, we'll do everything we can, right? Uh, rely on your neighbors, all these um, sayings that made us all feel very um, united against this pandemic. And very specifically, there was um, a video of Premier Doug Ford making a cherry cheesecake uh, in a t-shirt that said, we're all in this together. And he did that to encourage people to take up baking or to other hobbies while in lockdown. I think we can, we can um, say that the image and the video did not age well now that we're a year and more than a year past the pandemic. So when did all all this change? Why are some people so angry and defiant? I think that uh, my research on post-recovery after disasters and after crises tells me that people often like to come together at the beginning of a pandemic, uh, I guess at the beginning of a crisis, the beginning of a disaster to uh, feel strong. They want to rely on their neighbors. They want to uh, rely on their family. They want to feel like I've got a bunch of people that can help me overcome something. Right? So what we see, what we saw in the pandemic um, was that people were helping seniors get groceries, 
right? People were finding out how to, where to get masks, sharing sanitizer. We got all these kind of great things. People were forming bubbles and pods to help each other. And that's very normal. We've studied that. We know that that is the case. It's, um, we just like to do that. But of course, we know that um, kindness sometimes only goes so far. So I think after three or four months, when uh, people, you've, you've helped your neighbor, you've helped your senior, right? You feel the weight of the pandemic yourself, you perhaps start to turn inwards as a coping mechanism. And of course, the repeated lockdowns don't help people, right? When it first happened, a lot of people thought this was going to be just one lockdown. I, didn't, I, don't, I'm, I personally didn't think there would be multiple. And I think other people might not have thought that it would be multiple, it would be repeated, they would be different, right? So there was a lot of confusion. And I think people got fatigued, right? They got fatigued, they got fatigued by the different types of policies that were coming out. And I think as you go, go on, maybe like six months, seven months in the pandemic, everyone started having more knowledge of what uh, the coronavirus is, how it um, spreads, what we need to do to, to stop it. So we started coming up with our own uh, ideas and data and scientific uh, um, studies came out. So uh, the citizens themselves started thinking, okay, well, maybe this is what we need to do. So when the uh, fast forward to now, we're seeing that public policies that's telling that playgrounds should be shut down, right? Outdoor spaces should be shut down. When we know the science tells us otherwise, that's when people get really upset. That's when people are going out to protest and in general, just enrage because they know that um, the policies are not matching up with the science and it's leading to people getting killed. There was so much solidarity in the beginning. I mean, we saw this in our own community of people making masks and personal protective equipment, helping their neighbors out. And, and now that seems to have shifted locally. Yet you and your colleagues seem to know that that was inevitable. How is it inevitable that there would be this I think, shift? I think the shift is inevitable because um, it's really difficult for social inequalities to disappear. Right, because um, for solidarity, solidarity means that we're seeing past those social inequalities, that we're just seeing our neighbors as our peer. We're not seeing them for their race, for their age, for their ability, for their income, right? Um, but now I think as the pandemic rolled on, uh, and especially the big divide between people who could um, go stay home and work from home, and people who were essential workers and had to go on the really packed buses and get to their workplace, where we know that 30% of outbreaks um, are happening in workplaces, right? So when those divides come in, it's very difficult to look each other and know that we're treated equally or the pandemic affects us equally, when that we know that that is not the case. I know there's been some statistics about where the outbreaks have been happening, and it's it's rather counterintuitive to what we've been led to understand. Could you talk a little bit about those statistics then? Yes. So a large number of the outbreaks come from schools. They're the first. Uh, they're the um, most um, common place for outbreaks. And um, I think it was very confusing because teachers kept getting mixed messages about whether schools were safe or not. So the data tells us it is not safe. Right. And I think that's really important to um, to know and to follow the, the data. And the second is uh, workplaces and workplaces are the second um, aspect. And we know that they are spreading and their essential workers have to go to work. There's no paid sick days yet. Uh, so as a result, people are really upset that that is not being followed. But the statistics are, are so different. I mean, we were told for quite some time by the premier and by the minister of education that schools were safe, everything was okay. Where did you pull these statistics? 
So I got the statistics from the Ontario government's website. Their COVID website posts this. And I think this is what is enraging people, right? You, you, you are presenting us with the statistics that you are not following, right? They're, they're not using evidence-based policymaking. And I think that's what is upsetting a lot of people. Um, you've got them, you've got the stats, yet they're not reflected in policy. How is that possible? And the same could be said, I guess, of the paid sick days uh, that people are, are pushing for. I guess the science table has said that this is something that uh, they think would go a long way to helping uh, stem the outbreaks at work in workplaces, and yet the government doesn't seem to be wanting to, uh, to introduce these. Is that similar to what you're talking about? Uh, that is exactly what I'm talking about. And um, we just heard today that the Ford government has voted against the bill that was put up by the Liberals for paid sick days that would have given uh, people 10 consecutive or 10 sick paid sick days. So that's been voted down. And I assume it's been voted down because the Conservatives are going to bring their own bill. But I think to the um, to citizens who are following this, they're just getting really upset, right? Because they're made vulnerable by policies um, and they can't even take time. They can't even get paid time to go you know, get a test, which is really important. You talk about inequities within the system, making it worse by the pandemic. What are you seeing? What I'm seeing is that there are communities like Jane and Finch that are, have a 5% vaccination rate, even though they are mainly composed of essential workers. And then we have more affluent communities like Moore Park, which are vaccinated by 22%. And most of those people have jobs that let them stay at home or they're retired. Uh, one of the uh, factors that do account is because of the differences in age. Uh, Jane and Finch is very uh, populated by young people or younger population, um, whereas Moore Park is more retirees or older people. Uh, at the same time, what we need to kind of look at it in the sense that, sure, older people are more vulnerable, we know that, but if they're allowed to stay at home, and if they're allowed to work from home, then they're not being exposed to the virus, like the younger people who are the essential workers who go to work every single day, who are making our coffee, bagging our groceries, right? They don't have a choice but to work and they don't have the money to allow them to, you know, take days off work just for the fact of not getting exposed. These inequities have existed before this. Mm -hmm. Why has the pandemic made it so much worse? Or why has it bring it brought it to our attention? Maybe is a better question. Uh, I think we've been aware of these inequities before, but I think that it's been much more apparent um, to us during the pandemic because these policies, these inequities, um, determine who gets to live and who gets to die. And I think that's what makes it so stark. Uh, I'm not sure if you heard, but a 13-year-old girl, uh, uh, Emily Villegas, uh, she died yesterday. And because her father was a worker in a warehouse, right? Like that is tragic. And, and their mother was, is also in the hospital. So it's just tragic to see families and to see people who are actually dying as a result of policies that make them vulnerable as a result of politicians not prioritizing communities which they know are more exposed to COVID. And I think that is what is really upsetting people is that as a result of these inequalities, people are getting sick and people are dying. This is not, you know, this is very serious stuff, as you know. You talk about this in terms of uh, low income people, you talk about it in terms of racialization and, and other factors, but what about urban versus rural? We watch as major urban centers or hotspots are getting all the attention. 
we have worked hard here in, in our community in Northumberland to follow the rules, and yet we keep waiting for vaccines. We know that there are rational and justifiable reasons, yet it, it still feels unfair. How do your ideas uh, address this sort of tension between urban and rural? I think that one of the things that was really shocking that it got um, taken away was the color coding. Because the color, color coding was actually extremely effective at uh, easing the tension between rural and urban, right? Because as a result, you know, people who are in rural areas who are doing better, right? You guys are rewarded by being a gray zone or being a zone that is not red hot in with more restrictions. I think that made a lot of sense and it made people feel better, right? We're a very diverse province. How is it possible that there are now provincial wide measures? I think people in your community, people in other communities who know that they're not uh, at high risk or exposed uh, have a right to be extremely upset uh, that they can't go and, and do things that they know uh, are less risky. So um, that's definitely something. And with the vaccines, that's another issue of priority. Uh, one of the things that um, came out about last week was the fact that some of the postal codes that were high risk, that were above the risk exposure for the province were left off the hot list of postal codes. And five that were had below average exposure were put on. Um, I don't wanna to sound too partisan, but it's been found that the five that were put on are represented by conservative MPPs. And the eight that were left off were represented by opposition MPPs. So when people hear stories of that, they get really upset that, that there, there is no overall criteria that's being used to select who gets prioritized, who gets vaccines. And it seems that maybe lobbying or maybe uh, uh, political politics, right, is, is contributing to who gets uh, chosen to have vaccines. What is politically produced precarity and how does it apply to the current situation in Ontario? Politically produced precarity is what we're seeing right now when we have public policy that is causing some groups to be vulnerable. And it's not because they're just vulnerable, it's contributed, it's produced by the policy. So uh, an example could be that with this latest lockdown, essential workers can work, workplaces like warehouses, factories, farms, they can still operate, but essential workers were not uh, prioritized for vaccines, nor did they have paid sick leave. So these policies are forcing these individuals to go to work while they're still sick. And if they do get sick or feel sick, they don't have any mechanisms to allow them to take the time off they need. So they're forced to go and they're forced to spread. So these policies are creating an environment or a box, if you think about it, that traps them to be much more vulnerable to COVID-19 when individually they don't want to, but because of the structures, they're forced to. How can we better see and respond to politically produced precarity? I think what we're what some people are doing now on Twitter and through advocacy is what we can do, which is calling out the government for what they see as completely unjust policies for policies that they feel are not evidence based and trying to call their MPPs, uh, call the premier's office and really advocate for policies that are going to protect the most vulnerable, because in a case like the pandemic, we are all vulnerable if when people are not protected. Right. So even though, um, like I mentioned before, 22 percent of more park was vaccinated. Well, those people are not the essential workers that are going out to workplaces to spread the virus if they have it. Right. So even though they're vaccinated, they're still vulnerable. Right. When we're not. So one, one essential worker vaccinated is much better 
than perhaps a 65 plus who can work from home and not leave the house that's vaccinated. Can this marginalization be reflected not just in terms of minorities or racialized people, but also the disabled, maybe the mentally challenged, rural communities, communities in the north, indigenous communities, and so forth? Absolutely. Um, one of the things, I'm not sure if you've heard, but some uh, indigenous communities are getting really upset, especially urban indigenous populations, when they go and try to sign up for a vaccine uh, and they show up and the pharmacists or whoever is helping them start to question their identity because maybe because they're not educated on the fact that Indigenous people are included as a, as a uh, eligible group. Perhaps this Indigenous person is very young, or perhaps they might not look as Indigenous as the person serving them may feel. Uh, and I've seen tweets of people sharing that they've been asked about uh, if they're whole blood or half blood, which, you know, which is not a question you're supposed to ask. If they were eligible, they filled out the right forms on, online, they're supposed to go. And now they're having their indigeneity questioned while getting a shot and of course being fearful and risk not being not getting the shot and having somebody say no to them because of discrimination right and in terms of rural areas we know that or areas in the north we know that internet access is also a really difficult thing we're seeing policy change day by day right how are you supposed to keep up uh, with the different changes in policy if perhaps you know you don't have internet access uh, to give you those I don't know uh, 24-7 updated information. Um, and then there's also the aspect of language barrier. There are a lot of communities that do not speak English, that do not read English, right? So if they cannot navigate the websites or call the pharmacies, right, they need to rely on third parties like volunteer groups that have popped up to help people book vaccines. So there, there are many barriers that I feel were obvious, but have not been really tackled. Uh, by the government when they were rolling out the, the vaccine plan or planning the vaccine plan. How are economic forces compounding these disparities? I think that the pandemic has made everybody very stressed financially and especially essential workers who, did, who some of them did lose their jobs or did lose hours in the very beginning of the pandemic. Um, and and they, are, they feel now, even though there's a third wave, even though there is a high risk of getting the virus, most people feel that they still have to go to work. Essential workers really do feel they don't have a choice but to go to work. Um, and it's true, right? You know, and how, how are they going to pay their bills? Their bills have not been cut. Maybe that's another way to think about it, right? Their rent really hasn't been cut. Some places might have lowered it by $50 or $100, but that really isn't that much. Their grocery bills may have even increased because they have to um, cook more, eat more, perhaps when they're at home. And, you know, other utilities, internet, you know, our cell phone bills are still the same. Then the pandemic has not really changed uh, the expenses that most households have, but they have increased uh, how much they have to spend or they have, they have decreased their wages. You are openly concerned about the role of policing during this time. What has you so worried? I think that it's well known that um, carding, which is what the, the government has proposed where people can just be pulled over or asked where they're going while they're walking, uh, is often linked to racial profiling. So that's the concern, is that you've got people who are going to be pulled over just because they're Black or they're Asian or, or they look quote-unquote suspicious uh, and get asked. And the scary thing is uh, many people might not have the proper documents to show where they work or where they live, and that can be a very frightening experience. Um, to have police pull you over and, and interrogate you like that. And I, and I don't think it is uh, one of the more effective policies. 
because there are other policies that can limit people's mobility without saying that a police officer can come up to you. And although, you know, Canada is not like uh, the US, we are highly influenced by the US media about all the shootings. So you can imagine somebody who might not have that, that much interaction with a police officer, only through what they know through the American media, a police officer comes up to them, they, it, it, can be an, it can be a very unfriendly, hostile uh, encounter, even though it's not meant to be. But the, the government did pull back on that, uh, that policy within 24 hours. Now that they've pulled back on it, what are, you, what are your concerns beyond that? I think that it showed that the premier's office was not communicating with the different police forces, which is what surprised me. You would think that policy is something, a policy as sweeping as this and as powerful as this is something that is consulted with. So I was under the impression that this was something that perhaps the different police forces had spoken about and brought to the premier's office or vice versa. But you think that there's some kind of round table, some type of conference call to talk about something so important. So when I saw all the different police forces, Ottawa, Kingston, you know, and then Toronto saying, no, we're not gonna do that. And actually being defiant to the premier, I was very surprised because it showed to me that there was no consultation and there was no conversation about what would be effective. And the premier's office just decided by themselves to implement something so significant and so invasive without talking to the actual police forces that would have to implement it on the ground. So theory and practice were completely separate in that case for me. And I think that was, uh, that demonstrated to me what other policies have they not talked to people about, right? What, what, you know, where are they getting the ideas to close playgrounds and outdoor areas? Or where are these ideas coming from? Because they don't seem to be coming from the uh, stakeholders and the groups that are implementing the policies or have a uh, knowledge of what's happening on the ground. How do we end politically produced precarity? I don't think we can end it. <laughs> I think that's something that is going to be around for a very long time. But what we can be is we can be aware of it. And I think that might be one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that people are growing aware of what other people uh, perhaps who are, you know, have less income, who might be racialized, who are just have a different, you know, uh, situation in life, the vulnerabilities that they're facing. So I feel like there is a lot of sympathy that has been developed as a result of this third wave and as a result of people paying more attention to policies, which we haven't been as paying attention to as much from the beginning. Because I feel like in the beginning, as we started this conversation, people were like wanting to believe that things were going to be okay. They wanted to believe that we're on this together. They wanted to believe that the politicians who are telling them, I'm going to tell you exactly like it is, you know, I'm a no BS politician, you know, I'm going to get the right policies that are going to help you, right? I'm going to get on the trucks that will deliver PPE to places, right? That was, those are very strong images and words that we wanted to believe. But the damage of that is that it made us focus on that and not on these questions of how are we going to make sure that essential workers are protected now and in the future? How are we going to make sure when the vaccine rollout comes out, we know there are going to be issues with inequality. So how do we overcome that, right? How do we plan ahead to make sure that people are looked after who are the most vulnerable? So I think that that was the danger of us focusing on these fluffy, happy, pieces of coming together, clapping for nurses, et cetera, and not uh, forcing politicians at the very beginning to make sure they look ahead and get this thing right. Going forward though, do you think those conversations will occur, that we will have more vibrant discussions around the issues you've been raising? I think we will. I am hopeful that there's, there's gonna be some positive change coming out of this, 
mainly because I have not seen Ontario this angry. I'm not sure if you follow tw Twitter uh, or doom scroll <laughs> at night, but Twitter, Ontario Twitter is very angry and they're very angry. Again, uh, be, they're angry that the science that they know, uh, the recommendations that are given to the province through the science table are not being implemented, right? It doesn't matter what political stripe you are. People want policies that are scientifically based because those are the policies that will protect everybody. So when you don't see that, it's a huge head scratcher because you're thinking whose interests are these politicians serving? Definitely not ours. Can we recapture the feeling once more of all being in this together? Yeah. So I think in the beginning of the pandemic, when we we're all scared, what is this virus? People like to come together. They like to say, we're all in this together. Politicians like to say that we're all in this together. We have your back. Uh, we'll do anything and everything it takes to protect you. It's our responsibility to protect you. So there were all these sayings that were going around that made people feel very confident in the government. They made them feel very um, comfortable and they made them feel a uh, part of a community, which is a very normal thing for people to do in the face of a disaster or crisis. Professor Yvonne Su, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much, Rob. Thanks for inviting me. That was Yvonne Su, a professor of equity studies at York University. Her article on politically produced precarity can be found at The Conversation, an online publication at www.theconversation.com. I want to thank my guests this week for talking to me, and I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in today. Please join me again next week when we will talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So please tune in. If you would like to listen or share this or any podcast, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. There you will find past podcasts, news, and other information about life and politics in Northumberland County. Or you can go to the radio station's website at northumberland897.ca. I'm Robert Washburn. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in, and I hope over the week you will continue to consider this. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Consider This. If you have any comments or would like to suggest a story, please contact me at considerthisnorthumberland at gmail.com or you can message me on Facebook at Consider This. If you enjoyed this podcast or are looking for more news and information about Northumberland County, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. That's consider-this.ca. And don't forget to share. And again, thank you for listening and stay tuned for more from Consider This.